Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, is Russia's newest stopless proof that Canada's sanctions are working? Dr. Laurie Turnbull joins us to discuss that and other political news. In a world where cooperation has given way to competition and conflict, how would Canada approach the prospect of a war? And no matter the currency, Canadians are worried about their money. Heather Schofield, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, will join us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Late last week, of course, we uh, carried the story about uh, Russia hitting back uh, shortly after uh, Canada announced its latest round of sanctions targeting individuals with ties to the Russian government. Uh, they put out basically a, a naughty list, I suppose is one of the ways you can call it, listing 61 different Canadians uh, that are no longer allowed in Russia. Uh, Brianna Carnegie from Global News has some details. Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Toronto's Mayor John Tory are among the latest round of Canadians now barred from entering Russia indefinitely. Also included are senior intelligence and military officials, journalists, other premiers and mayors. Russia's foreign ministry accuses these Canadians of supporting, quote, the Russophobic course of the ruling regime in Canada. Earlier this week, Canada announced new sanctions against Russia, including adding Vladimir Putin's daughters to its sanctions list. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also announced plans to send heavy artillery to support Ukrainian forces. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Russia for priorities and policies. Uh, yeah, I guess people get that way if we invade a, another country you know, illegally and start killing their citizens. Anyway, let's talk about this and uh, lots more from uh, the nation's capital. So pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, I hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today. I did have a great weekend. Thanks. I hope you did too. And yet, you didn't make the list and neither did I though. I'm disappointed. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, they're looking, at, they're looking at this as a punishment. This is like a badge of honor, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's part of it that's kind of like, listen, you're going to sanction our people, you know, we're going to sanction your people. And it fits into this, um, you know, campaign of lies coming from Putin around how, the, you know, the Russia is really the victim and, and we're, we're doing things against them that are unfair sort of thing. So it fits, fits into his kind of misinformation campaign and kind of, you know, he can feed this as a way to justify it. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I saw a list too of politicians, journalists, and yeah, no, it, it is, I think from the Canadian context, it's a badge of honor to be barred from Russia at this point. And, and to be barred from Russia. I mean, I, I going out on a limb here, but I don't think this is going to have any, much, any effect on anybody's short-term travel plans anyway. I mean, who is going to go to Russia? <laughs> no, exactly. No, there's no chance. I mean, they mean it as a kind of, you know, in, in some ways, this is so bizarre, but like a sort of shaming thing. But again, I think when when Putin's thinking about how to justify his own position, right, to the people who are listening to him, this is one of the ways that he's doing it, right, is, is well, we're, you know, they did this to us, so we're retaliating, you know, so it's sort of a blame shifting, you know, trying to avoid accountability and trying to paint his own narrative of what he's doing and why. As this as this continues, right? Because again, like this is as we've talked about before, this has all kind of tr unpacked in ways that Putin didn't expect, and so I suspect it's going on much longer than he expected. The Ukraine has responded in a much, you know, in a way that that is incredibly inspiring and is very strong, right? And so this isn't an, an easy exercise for Russia at all. What's interesting about this, too, is as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, ever since this invasion began, uh, there's always been some questions about Canada's contribution and is it enough? And, you know, does anybody really care with little old Canada? 
but as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Luke Frederick Gilbert, who is actually one of the former commanders of the training mission of the Canadians that went over to Ukraine, it's, it, he's on the list now, by the way. He's suggesting yeah. this proves that what we're doing over there is having an impact. The Russians are pretty ticked off at us right now. Yeah. And, you know, things that efforts that we've been making for a while, you know, before this ever happened yeah. to fortify uh, military in, in in Ukraine has been is now we can see you know this this has helped this has helped for them to develop strategies that have been very effective for them in protecting Ukraine and so you know it's it's not something that Canada did just we're we're doing a lot you know a lot of countries are doing a lot in terms of reacting and send, sending equipment and sending aid and and things like that and and accepting people who need some place to go so that is safe like we've we've done all that and we're doing all that but also there there was a mission in place before this attack ever happened that is proving to be very instrumental in the efforts in Ukraine right now to be able to hold Russia back well, it actually happened late last week, but I haven't talked to you since then. I wanted to get your read on this. There was a G20 meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, late last week, and it was all about the economy and how we're going to get ourselves back on our and inflation and the whole nine yards. The Canadian contingent, including uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, walked out of the meeting as soon as the Russians started to speak, saying they don't belong here. Pretty strong political statement. And, and again, I, well, she's already, by the way, banned from Russia. But among many others, she made she made the initial list. But for Canada to make a statement like that, it really kind of, I think, supports what the prime minister and Minister Freeland were saying earlier, that it's it's time to boot Russia out of the G20. They're already out of what was the G8. It's the G7 again now. Putin wants back in. Trump was trying to get him back in. Uh, And now Trudeau and some other leaders uh, suggesting maybe it's time to, to oust them from the G20, too. Yeah, I mean, I and I agree with you. I think that was a very powerful stance uh, that Christian Freeland and others took. I think it's an indication that you know, in order for us, to, for the for NATO countries, for G twenty, for G seven, for you know, forces around the world that are standing with Ukraine, it is important for us to always, you know, regardless of what the room is, regardless of what the conversation is to keep this line, you know, to keep a united line and to let Russia know that what's, you know, what's happening is in no circumstances going to be tolerated. We're not going to trade this off in order for you to have a, you know, conversations about the economy. No, you know, you, Russia will be pushed back and pushed out of every room until this is sorted. And may, I don't even know what's going to happen after that. But I think it's, it's partly, you know, it's a part of that, right? It's about, about us being like maintaining a consistent line. Well, and the, that consistency, I think, was was underscored by that comment. That, oh, by the way, the Canadian ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, was also on the list uh, because of some rather pointed comments he's made uh, at the UN over the last couple of weeks about Russia and uh, and their interference in Ukraine activities. So there's, there's a consistency there, and I'm not suggesting for a second that what Canada's doing is pivotal. It's, it's going to take a team effort here from NATO and, and other nations uh, to give Ukraine all the assistance that it needs. But uh, there's a consistency there to the policy. Uh, which I find interesting, and certainly the Russians do as well. So they are paying attention, folks, uh, when we make statements like that. In other news, back home here, uh, Laurie, uh, let's talk about, uh, well, the conservative leadership race is on. We know that. Uh, but so is so is the attempt by, by people like Pierre, Pierre Polyev and others to spread disinformation. And, and the latest one of those, of course, is this fictional truck tax that uh, Jason Kenney mm-hmm. and Pierre Polyev and, and I think Leslie Lewis, to a certain extent, are all jumping on it saying, this is going to happen. If you're going to buy a truck, the, the liberals are going to nail you on this. And it's not really true. There's, there's really no basis in, in fact to this. 
Yeah. I mean, we know that this was sort of a recommendation that came to the federal government. And as far as I can tell, there's there's no you know efforts to kind of go ahead with that. Right. This is not something that the prime minister has announced as a policy. And now they're campaigning against it. Like it's sort of like it's it's misinformation. It's an idea. You know, it's, I guess, some kind of a possibility. But it shows how today's political campaigns are so comfortable, not all of them, but a lot of them with stretching the truth coming up with ideas that may or may not be true or just total straight out fabrications and lies to try to get support for themselves, for what they're doing and to try to create um, an argument that isn't really there. Right. And so it's really disheartening when you look at it as somebody who really cares about democratic institutions to see that, you know, where's the recourse? What happens if somebody does something like that? Right. Like and the federal government. um, And I I definitely admit that there were this wasn't a perfect piece of legislation, but they did try to make it um, a crime to lie, you know, to to tell lies about candidates during campaigns as a way of putting some legislative sanction and making you, you know, holding someone to account for just straight up lying or, or, you know, fabricating that sort of thing. And it was struck down by the court. It's very difficult to do. And I think ultimately the question comes back to the voters, right? Like how do we hold politicians to account for their fabrications? Because it does create confusion. And it's, and you know, what, what is the point of an election? If it's not based on truth, if it's not based on actual meaningful exchanges about what, about how different people would govern the country, so it's it's really disheartening. Uh, a couple of points on that too. That just in case our listeners may or may not be aware, uh, as a Supriya Dewili in the Star wrote in her op-ed piece the other day, she called it Alanis Morissette level of irony, because it was actually the Harper government that, that instituted attacks on what they called inefficient trucks. Yeah. Uh, what I guess it was a year or so after they got took office. So I mean, that he's Polyev is criticizing something that he supported when he was in government. But as to the as to the report itself, and the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, not surprisingly, has jumped on this as well. Said mm-hmm. it's buried deep in the report. It's in the appendix. It's in the annex at the end of the report, and they're required to do that by law because it was a a, a non political agency that made this recommendation, you know, they have public hearings before they do a report on this. And there were 15 or 20 groups that made recommendations, and they're all in the end of the report. They're not in the report, meaning we're going to do it. They say, we have to say who was there and what they said. And, sure. and, and Polyev is grabbing onto that and saying, aha, they've buried this in the report, which, which again, is, is, is well, it's stretching in the, the credulity of just about every aspect of this. And I, I'm not standing here and saying the government's right. Uh, with anything they're doing with their environmental policy, it might be right, might be wrong. I don't know, but again, they're they're making stuff up here to try to to put an, a, a dark light on this and to try to make themselves look better. And it's you're, you're right. I mean, it, it's it's stuff like this that makes people say, you know what? I'm sick with politics. I'm out. Oh yeah, a hundred percent right. Because you look at this this kind of exchange of it's not even ideas, right? Like it's it's these fabrications, and this is not based in like how do you take somebody seriously? If they're, they want to, he says he wants to be prime minister and I'm sorry, like he's, you know, like this is, this is how he wants to go about it. And people absolutely will turn, you know, kind of turn their head away and say, this, this is ridiculous, right? Like at, at best, this is not serious. And at worst, this is toxic. And so why would I, why would a reasonable person want to be part of any of it? And I think that we have to think really deeply about what that means for people who want to contest political office. This really matters. Right. Like when people look at this and see, for goodness sake, right, like this isn't even a real claim. 
And, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, why would I run for office? Why would I want to be part of that and, you know, give up my privacy and my family's privacy just to have to go and have to defend myself against claims that aren't even true, you know, just to kind of get in the door. It is unbelievable. Well, and even worse, they may just say to hell with it, I'm not voting anymore. And, you know, oh, yeah. Even if they don't want to seek public office. And that's that's an egregious mistake, too, for people to make that. But I can understand their level of frustration. It's rather interesting, though, uh, the, the way things are going here. I mean, it's not as if there isn't enough uh, in the Trudeau budget to, that they could spend hours criticizing and critiquing uh, that they have to make something up instead of dealing with the stuff that was actually in the budget. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. Like when we're in a position right now where federal government, the federal government has just released a budget. There are, as you say, lots of ways to find, you know, things about it that you don't like, things that you wish were there and are not. Like, it seems like this, you know, even there's, there's positive things to say about the budget. Sure. It depends on how, you know, you do that by your own lights, but there's lots of things for the opposition parties to go at here. And rather than do that, you know, when and at this point, the government is out trying to sell the budget. This is a key time for the opposition parties to be using, you know, the actual material they have to be able to go out and say, listen, like this budget is not what people need. And when they're electing a new leader. It is a you know key time. People are actually listening now, right? Like, go and get your message out there. Explain if you want to be prime minister how you would have done this differently. Talk about what you mean by tackling the housing crisis. Talk about what you mean by what we should do about inflation. And instead, you're right. There's this silly line about you know a truck tax. Like, come on. And so, why do they think that this will be more effective at at galvanizing support. Why does Pierre Polyev think that this is a this is a better tactic for him? And it just sort of has the effect of of taking the seriousness and taking the meaning out of political debate because you end up kind of going back and forth on lines that don't really matter. This isn't really a government policy. So you end up kind of talking about nothing rather than getting into a meaningful exchange about how we should manage the economy going forward because we're still in a very critical point. Well, and, you know, for people that think, well, this is all on Trudeau, they're just trying to, they are, I, I get the intent here, but it's, it's, it's rubbing off on Polyev too. I mean, there were two polls done late last week. I think one was Ipsos and the other was Nick Nanos. Mm-hmm. And both suggested that within the conservatives, those who identify themselves as conservatives, Polyev seems to be the runaway winner in this leadership thing. But when they ask Canadians uh, broadly, the majority of them don't like the guy, uh, they, which, you know, raises the question that you and I talked about last week. He may win this thing as a conservative leader, but can he grow the leadership? Can he grow popularity among the, the conservatives? And the polling so far, he says no. Yeah. And I mean, one of the questions that we've talked about before, Bill, and, and it's been a big question for a long time, is whoever wins this thing, can they unite the party? Can they bring all the factions back together? And I'm really starting to think no. Right. Like whoever wins this thing is going to design the party in their own way. And some people are going to be left out. And so if Pierre Polyev wins it is, you know, and looking at his numbers among Canadians who are not identifying as conservative voters, right? Like he is not, not the most popular candidate among that, that block of voters or on that group of voters. What is he going to do? It looks like he's going to try to grow the party to the right. So capture the votes that might've been lost to the PPC in the last election and two, and sort of try to build the party in that way. He's not going to stretch back to the center to make sure Jean Charest is comfortable, right? He's just not. And so some people will be feel left out of the conservative fold. They may be looking for something else, right? And so I think this has, you know, this particular race, more than the last two, this leadership race has a real, you know, potential to reshape the party system in Canada, depending on who wins. Exactly. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, always a pleasure, Laurie. Thanks so much for this. Uh, have a great week. We'll talk again soon. 
Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Bill. You betcha. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University, the uh, director of the School of Public Administration in that fine facility. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of talk about Canada's commitment to Ukraine. Uh, Certainly the opposition critics have been making a lot of noise about that, as have some other pundits, questioning, are we doing everything we could be doing? Well, uh, it's going to require a rethink. And uh, there's an op-ed piece in the conversation that uh, I I find uh, rather interesting. And it talks about Canada's commitment and its approach to the prospect of war. And for those of you who think, well, come on, we're just peacekeepers. We don't do that sort of thing. Well, you know, it almost got thrown in our laps early days of the invasion, as you recall, because we weren't sure and are still not sure whether or not this is going to evolve into a third world war. Actually, some uh, op-eds uh, last little while have suggested it's already happening to a limited degree. Anyway, the piece uh, is called How Would Canada's Approach approach rather the, the Prospect of War? Uh, the author is Dr. Paul T. Mitchell, who is a professor of defense studies at Canadian Forces College. And uh, Dr. Mitchell joins us on the program to talk about this. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for your time today. Very pleasure to have you uh, to, be, to be part of the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. And like I say, some people may feel skittish talking about this and say, well, that's not Canada's role. We don't do that anymore. It's not a matter of whether or not it's role. It's, it's our part in NATO. It's our contribution. It's our, our commitment to NATO uh, in times of, of, well, like what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. So like it or not, we could get dragged into this and we better be ready for it. Uh, that's absolutely true. We've gone through a, a whole period, uh, a time of history where we've been allowed to have comfortable assumptions about the type of commitment Canada can make because of our geographic isolation. Uh, But in our past, we've been presented with hard choices where we've had to make commitments, whether we wanted to or not. Um, And this is the danger that I think we're we're approaching this this present era with. Uh, Our military is very small. There are only 80 Leopard 2 tanks in the Army right now, uh, or a little bit more than 80. Uh, and there's just a little bit more than 40 heavy artillery pieces, M777s, uh, and we've just sent four of them to Ukraine. It's very likely that uh, Ukraine will be requiring heavy armor later on uh, in the year because this this war is not going to end anytime soon, in my estimation. Uh, and they're going to need uh, replacements for the systems that they're losing right now. And are we going to get rid of all the tanks that we have in this country in order to support Ukraine? And then if we get drawn into a conflict later on, what are we going to do? What is our army position for in this world of of great power competition uh, and and conflict? That's the question that I, I think we haven't really addressed as Canadians. I know we're going to say some things here that may fe- make people feel uncomfortable, but I mean, uh, this is terrible what's happening in Ukraine, and, and you know, we've stepped up, and we can't argue about Canada's commitment for that. But the stories we heard over the weekend, Professor, as, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, indicated that Russia's uh, long-term goals extend way beyond uh, Ukraine to other sections. Uh, you know, this is really uh, the, Putin's long-term goal here is to re- recreate the, this USSR. At what point do we say not enough is enough? And I mean not just Canada, but NATO. But if we're going to do that, as you mentioned in the piece, we better define how we're going to do that. Like, what is Canada's role? What is Canada's military, not just defense, and it may well be defense, because we all know that the Russians have a strong presence and a strong desire for an even stronger presence uh, in the Arctic right now. Uh, we're right on their doorstep. So, you know, we, we, we can't just, you know, pretend this isn't happening around us. That's absolutely right. It's really easy to bang the moral drum right now in terms of getting on side with the Ukraine, the Ukrainians. And, and I'm one of those people who, who believe that they deserve all the support and more 
than what they're getting um, uh, right now in order to defend their sovereignty. And I also believe that uh, should um, Putin be successful in Ukraine, then states like the Baltics, Poland, um, Finland, all of these border, uh, border areas, and certainly places like Georgia and, and, and elsewhere, are going to feel a lot of pressure uh, from, uh, from, from the Russians. But the, the whole point, the whole point of the matter is, is that if we're going to make these these commitments, we have to back that up with real capability uh, and we have to decide what capabilities are we willing to underwrite uh, in this kind of, of new world. I don't really think that there's much of a threat uh, to, physically to our Arctic right now. I just came back from Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. I was up there. Let me tell you, I agree with former chief of defense staff, Walt Natinchuk, that anybody who's going to invade the territory up there, we're going to probably have to organize a search and rescue mission for them. Uh, the, the environment in Nunavut is harsh and uncompromising, even in the, the, the circumstances of, of climate change. And it's a long way from anywhere, which means it's going to require a tremendous amount of logistic ability to, to, to sustain and use that territory up there. But that's not to say that there isn't a threat through the Arctic in the form of missiles, in the form of naval vessels, in the form of cruise missiles, all sorts of things that the Russians could be doing uh, in our northern approaches, which require a Canadian response. And again, that requires us to think very carefully about the type of, of resources and infrastructure we're going to build and create to address those types of threats. We need to define ourselves, though, don't we? And I mean, that's I know one of the the article or pieces in the article that you wrote, and and you used as an example, of course, when the, the, right back to the title. You know, what's our approach going to be if, in fact, there's going to be a military conflict involving Canada? Britain, as you mentioned in the piece, traditionally has been a sea power. I mean, they use their navy, and that was the the strength of of their military existence. A small little island, but you know, the navy, since they're surrounded by water, uh, offered them a great deal of protection, especially in the Second World War. U.S. has taken a different approach. You know, we all remember the race across the Iraqi desert, of course, with Desert Storm. Uh, it's quick hit and overwhelming power, shock and awe, as yep. uh, uh, Colin Powell used at that time. What are we? I mean, do, do you need to define what you are and what you're capable of to be able to be an effective force? Absolutely. I mean, let's be clear. There are very clear geographical um, uh, tr um, constraints on Canadian power. Effectively, we're isolated from the globe by three oceans and a superpower. And this has allowed us traditionally to take a very gated community approach to our, our, our security. We don't have to think very hard about our security because we've got these enormous oceans, tremendous distance, and a very friendly and very powerful neighbor. But if that neighbor turns hostile, uh, as it might in the future, there's nothing that guarantees that, that the good relationships with between Canada and the U.S. have to persist over time. We've been hostile with, with each other historically. It could happen again. What would that mean for can Canadian security uh, with a hostile superpower on our border? What does it mean? Let's say the Americans remain friendly, though. What does it mean in an era of great power competition and conflict for a small power geographically isolated from the sources or the, the, the locations of conflict uh, in terms of the kinds of commitments that are going to be required of us as an ally or as a partner in a coalition. Traditionally, you know, sea power and air power have been very effective uh, bulwarks and are things that can be deployed easily uh, abroad. Uh, the army is a different matter. The army 
Uh, we use it, uh, you know, as aid to civil power. We use it in natural disasters domestically, but we don't anticipate fighting a land war in Canada. So things like heavy artillery, things like uh, attack helicopters, things like uh, main battle tanks, all of these things are purely for expeditionary operations. And those things are very discretionary. They may be less discretionary in the future, though, uh, in, in a world characterized by a lot of, of endemic conflict between the great powers. Uh, we may have to send our forces because we cannot make any other decision. And those kinds of decisions have come at us in the past. They came at us in, 19, in the, the early part of uh, the Second World War, where we deployed a battalion of troops to Hong Kong, and they were basically lambs to the slaughter. We had to make a decision in 2003 with regards to Afghanistan. I think most Canadian politicians would prefer not to have gone to Afghanistan, but given our stance on BMD and given our stance on the Iraqi invasion, we really had to go to Afghanistan to, in order to demonstrate our alliance bona fides. These are the kinds of decisions we may confront as a small power, a very big geographic place, but a very small military power uh, in a future of great power conflict. To have this conversation, I know some people are going to say, well, that's going to try to make us into something that we're really not. Uh, you have to go back a little further in history than, uh, than you know, the peacekeeping days in, in Cyprus, etc. In, in World War II, Canada had one of the strongest and most effective militaries, especially the, the ground war anyway. And it's tapered off over generations, I guess, because they figure, wait, well, hell, we don't want to go through that stuff again. Uh, and and let's face it, you know, with the, the development of nuclear power and, and the threat of, of the Cold War ramping up, you know, it just seemed as if the attitude seemed to be back then, look, we don't want that to happen. That's going to destroy the world. That's, that attitude has changed. Uh, the idea about finding compromise, uh, you look at what China's doing, what Russia's doing right now, uh, they don't give a damn about the damage they cause. They're just in an expansionist mode, and whoever gets in their way, watch out. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, is, is these choices aren't ones that may be uh, available to us in the future. We would prefer to remain a peace, peacekeeping nation. I'm sure every Canadian would prefer that we sure. could stay out of wars uh, in, in the future, but those choices might not be available. We may have to pick a side uh, just simply because of the choices that are presented to us by great powers. Uh, in the future, and we may have to we may have to make a choice as much as we would prefer not to. The issue of World War II is a great one. I mean, our navy was the fourth largest navy at the end of the Second World War. Clearly, Canada didn't need a navy that big. It wasn't going to exercise its power militarily in the globe after the Second World War, and it needed to put its uh, its its resources into different types of economic baskets. Rebuilding that is is going to be would be incredibly difficult. It would would require us to completely change our industrial base. Uh, it would completely change uh, how we employ people uh, within the country. There just isn't the capacity to absorb that many people uh, to cre recreate the World War II army that we had in, in the present economic circumstances. Not the least because it would be unaffordable, but because there just aren't people to fill out those positions. They're all doing other jobs that actually pay a lot better than what we can offer them in, in the Canadian forces. We're 10,000 people short within the CAF right now. So, so this notion that we could quickly build up a World War II-sized military, I think, is, is fanciful. The, just the, the production costs alone or the production scale of ramping up that, like where would we get the tanks from? Where would we get the missiles from? Where would we get the aircraft from? 
the the JSF that we're we're purchasing, the F thirty five, they only make about uh, about a hundred of those aircraft a year, and that is distributed across the United States, uh, across uh, all of the allies that are participating in the F thirty five program, as well as us. So it's going to take us a long time to get those airplanes. Now maybe industry could be repurposed, but again. That would be an enormous economic decision made uh, on a global basis, uh, given the the uh, the interactivity of the supply chains that that presently exist. Uh, we we just can't think about these things like we used to in World War II. Uh, it really, as I say in the piece, it really requires us to sit down and think strategically about what Canada wants to achieve in the future with its investments in military uh, and 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 security resources. And your point's well taken. I mean, I don't think anybody's suggesting or that that we need to ramp back up to the to the level that we had in World War II. No, it's a different not, world. Yeah. We understand that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the the Canadian government has been under a good deal of pressure uh, from the U.S. government, not just under Donald Trump, but previous to that, and and certainly even today, uh, to increase their military commitment to NATO. Well, that 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 means putting more money into it. And you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, if the invasion of of Ukraine hadn't happened. Would there be eight billion dollars in the budget uh, for the defense spending? I don't think there would be. I mean, because I, I, I would, the, the I would government not agree has to with make you that on change. that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, 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 I would completely agree with you on that. Um, and and secondly, I don't think this latest edition is going to be the last. Um, if if the security situation continues to worsen, and there's no indication that it will get better, Putin has put himself into a corner. China is clearly drawing lines. It may be a little bit more cautious about its aggressiveness in the future, but it is clearly moving towards a future that uh, does not square with uh, with the rules-based international order as we've come to understand it uh, over the past 40 years or so. Uh, and so, as I said, we're going to be faced with these kind of strategic choices that are going to be put to us by these great powers, whether we like it or not. Now, we can choose to be isolationist because of the three oceans. Uh, And as long as we keep the Americans on side, we could choose to be a little bit more isolationist, a strong Navy, uh, an air force that is capable of defending our airspace and being seen to, to be capable of doing that by the United States would probably be acceptable. Taking care of our Arctic, of their backyard essentially, uh, would enable them a little bit more strategic flexibility on it globally, that they don't have to worry about their northern border. That would be a purely isolationist kind of strategy that Canada could pursue. Uh, it would have to be a armed neutrality in, in many ways. And so the Navy and the Air Force would have to be very, very capable forces, the Army perhaps less so. Uh, but that would not satisfy the demands for us to intervene on the moral basis I mean, the reason people are wanting to do more in Ukraine is solely based on, you know, the emotive, the emotive pressure that is created by the scenes we're witnessing in Mariupol and, and, and in Bucha and, and other parts of, of that country. Those kinds of demands aren't going to diminish either. And so Canada is going to be put in a vice in terms of the demands from great power and as well as from the demands of, you know, on the heartstrings about these various types of conflicts that are likely to erupt in the next 20 to 30 years. 
And, and anybody who thinks that this is a, a naive discussion, uh, as you point out in the piece, uh, in the conversation, two you know, Scandinavian nations who didn't usually take part in any of these discussions in the past, Sweden and Finland, are now clamoring to join NATO because they understand that there is a, well, to use the phrase from the States, a clear and present danger. Absolutely. I, I, was, uh, I was also recently uh, in Finland, and the change there is dramatic. I was there just shortly after 2014, uh, the, the invasion of, of Crimea, uh, and we were discussing NATO with, with various uh, uh, defense officials over there. And at the time, their MOD, of course, was very positive in terms of joining NATO, but recognized that politically it was impossible. The circumstances this time around are completely different. Um, virtually everybody we spoke to was was very much uh, in favor of, of joining NATO. The solidarity that is shown on the streets in Helsinki uh, in terms of flying of Ukrainian flags and blue and yellow colors that are in windows and shop fronts and, and so on and so forth, uh, the street art that is on the side of, uh, of overpasses and such are all extremely pro-Ukraine and anti, uh, anti-Russian in their sentiment. It's a remarkable transformation for a nation. And this is a nation where we get the term Finlandization, which is basically accommodating your neighbor to the point that you even restrict your own individual liberties and parliamentary freedoms, uh, the, the political freedoms that we enjoy, so that you don't offend them, that you don't alarm them. The Finns have basically turned their back completely on Finlandization. And now that the term is not one that is celebrated, but in fact, one that is a, we never should have done that in the first place. It, one colleague said to me, this is this um, situation in, in Finland right now is very much Finnish grandparents, you know, the ghosts of Finnish grandparents saying, we told you about this, about the Russians. We told you so. You should have paid attention to us. Exactly. And, and as you mentioned in the piece, why are we having this discussion now? Because you can't just flick a switch and, and, and change like that. It's going to take time. I'm going to direct our listeners to theconversation.com and check out the piece uh, because I think it's very insightful and hopefully a discussion uh, that is ha- happening right now, I would hope, in the, in the closed doors and boardrooms uh, up in Ottawa. Professor, a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for writing the piece and uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for bringing me on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Paul T. Mitchell, Professor in the Defense Studies at Canadian Forces College. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now I want to talk about your money, not Elon Musk's money. Uh, And there's been a lot of discussion about money, about the type of money that we use, stuff like inflation. Uh, The Emergencies Act, remember, froze some people's bank accounts. And much to the concern and shock of some of the people that were impacted by that, there's a great piece uh, that was uh, in the Toronto Star called Whether It's Cash or Cryptocurrency, Canadians are Worried About Their Money. Uh, the author is, uh, of course, Heather Schofield, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Uh, Heather, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Whether we like it or not, we're all becoming financial experts here because it's in the news all the time and it's having an impact on just about all of us in one way or another. Uh, so it's a very timely piece because uh, I guess added to that, of course, is uh, Pierre Polyev's idea that he wants Canada to be the cryptocurrency capital of the world, which has a lot of people simply saying, what? What does he mean by that? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, it's very confusing for a lot of us right now. And, and in, you know, in the absence of information, as you point out in the piece, there's a lot of anxiousness and a lot of angst about what could be happening and how am I going to be impacted by this? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's there's so many uh, different dynamics happening here at the same time, you know, like, uh, everybody's talking a lot about crypto. And you know, I think the majority of us are, are kind of like, what? What is all that about? And then and then you get a lot of people that are just, you know, embracing it without a full set of facts or a full full assessment of the risks. And um, then it's, it's become very political all over the place, um, it, very, very quickly. Um, so there, there's that going on and then there's you know all sorts of uh, I, I guess there are a lot of questions about inflation too about you know do you have your money sitting there in the bank and and you think you've been building up savings your whole life and that feels like all of a sudden it's getting smaller and smaller or at least that money is not going to go as far as you thought it would because there's so much uh, there's there's so much inflationary pressure these days so there's that concern too which um, you know that the, the, it's also extremely political and then as you mentioned you know the, the government has frozen some they, they did it very temporarily and they did it uh, they did it you know under extreme circumstances but you know if you recall back in January they they did uh, freeze some accounts um, and you know the, obviously that was a very exceptional time um, and uh, it was it, it was you know an emergency they declared an emergencies act to do that but it was never fully explained, um, you know, why, what led to that decision to do, to, to take those steps. And in, in and at the time, it, it spooked a lot of people. So, you know, there was, uh, there were a lot of customers at various credit unions um, across the country that went then were, were quite upset and afraid that their money would be taken by the government. I mean, they were, they were wrong. In hindsight, they were wrong. But that moment when, when things were all in an uproar, they lost faith. So I've look, been looking pretty closely at at trust um, and how trust is really, uh, I think, you know, there are a lot of, you know, financial authorities, banks, um, you know, market players that assume that there's trust out there from regular people, that money will behave as it regularly does. But in fact, it's not really behaving as we expect it to all the time. But it's that lack of information, I guess. And, you know, in the, in the absence of information comes speculation. And I guess that really kind of fuels the fire. And your, your point about the, the credit unions and even the banks uh, is well taken because we remember those conversations as that was actually occurring. You know, they said, if you've contributed to any of these organizations that are behind this protest, uh, we could freeze your assets. And I know a lot of people said, look, I, I don't agree what they're doing, but I mean, I made a political contribution. I don't like this about the government or that about the government. So I made a, 10 bucks or something like that. Are they going to freeze all my bank accounts and all my assets? And, and they weren't very clear about that, were they? No, I mean, I think that's the problem. I mean, in, in hindsight, now, now that we look back, they didn't freeze. I mean, if somebody gave five bucks and they started it, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they were not retroactive in, in, in their in their blocking of accounts, then they were pretty selective too, but we didn't know that at the time. And so it yeah. didn't spook a lot of people. And we're going to be hearing a lot about th that this week because uh, we have, uh, well, the finance committee, uh, the parliamentarians are really digging into this. They've, the finance committee's looked into it and I think they have some recommendations coming out soon. And also on Parliament Hill, we've got the Emergencies Act. By by law, the um, par parliament has to really look hard at, uh, at why uh, why the act was invoked in the first place. So they're starting that that look this week. And, um, you know, we're going to have ministers talking about it, but all of those questions are going to be aired and looked at. But it, it and, you know, maybe we will come to some, some conclusions about how we can do it better the next time. But it did seem at the time that there was an awful lot of chaos on top of what was already um, chaotic in the streets of Ottawa and at border crossings and so forth, um, that it kind of uh, really threw a lot of people for a loop. 
And I guess the commonality here in both situations, the Emergency Act, and even today, I mean, you know, on a daily basis now, uh, we're hearing about governments uh, freezing assets of oligarchs or people that are doing business with oligarchs. That's not going to impact me, but it could, you know, some somebody else that, that is doing investments on a global basis. Uh, and, and a lot of people, I guess, you know, kind of get the shock of their lives, Heather, when they, they heard this stuff going on, and it's been going on ever since New Year now. Simply mm-hmm. saying they can do that. They can just freeze my asset, my bank accounts. No, they can't do that. Well, yeah, they can. Yeah, I mean, you're zeroed in on the right point. I mean, the, the thing is, most of us are not Russian oligarchs, right? <laughs> most of us are not are also not contributors to whatever convoy protests that 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 is out there. But um, you know, governments regulate banks. Governments um, have a lot of power, and they are using that power. And they are, you know, certainly going out there and justifying why, you know, I, I think uh, there is a, you know, certainly a lot of people very much in favor of the federal government using its power in this in this case to crack down on Russian oligarchs and do whatever it can to squeeze Russia and um, to to inflict economic pain on the Russian elites. Uh, in, you know, that, that, that if that's something we can do, that we should do it. Um, there are a lot of people that think that, and clearly the government thinks that too. Um, I think it, it has come to just a little bit of a surprise to, to some people that, that governments have that that power. I mean, they are very powerful in the end. Um, and I guess we're just kind of in this in this time when when people are questioning the you know, the value of their savings, the security of their savings. Um, you know, Canada has made its its reputation over the years as being a very secure place to keep money. And, you know, our banking system, you know, we hear no end of how in 2008, 2009, when we had the global financial crisis, Canada skated through that. Um, yeah, we had some pain, but we didn't nearly have the pain and, and collapse of financial systems that we saw in the United States and elsewhere, um, partly because we had a pretty rock solid, highly regulated banking system that that carried us through. Um, that's not something to be played with or just kind of uh, assumed that everybody will continue to, to, to believe it will last, right? It's something I think that, um, you know, when, when governments are going to go out there and start cracking down on whatever assets or savings or, or money flows that are out there, then they, they really do have to take care to explain to everybody that, okay, we're touching these people and here's why and here's how, and this is how it's going to end. But Otherwise, you're good. You mentioned something else here that I think a lot of us hadn't paid much attention to, but I, I, you did some research on this. When when there's instability like this, and people think, "Oh my God, I'm going to lose all my savings, my all my investments," uh, there can be a run. People just say, "I'm taking my money out of that financial institution, whether it's a credit union, a bank, whatever the case might be." It didn't happen to the extent like it did in 1929 during that huge crash, but it did happen in some institutions, and and that's that's a worrying trend. If if people get that unsure and and lose faith in their financial institutions and start stuffing in the mattress instead of putting it in those institutions. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, let's let's not exaggerate here. Um, the credit, it, the banking system didn't see any. The banks themselves didn't see that. The credit unions, on the other hand, did see. Some of them saw the, the so you know people lining up to take their money out, um, and they were they had enough liquidity, they had enough uh, you know reserves to be able to handle that flow. But it does become quite concerning when you just see a bunch of regular people, customers, just saying, "Okay, oh boy, I'm going to get nailed here, and I've got to take my." money out and i think you know there was some some 
complaints from the credit unions themselves that they had not been brought inside the tent uh, when the federal government was 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 thinking about using the Emergencies Act to crack down on money flows. Um, the big banks were, but the credit unions weren't. And you know what? That the, one of the startling points here is that a lot of those, uh, a lot of the uh, people who the protesters who showed up in Ottawa and uh, on those border crossings were from rural areas where you, those credit unions are central financial institutions. And so, you know, there's family and friends and, and, and not to excuse giving money to a cause that in the end um, broke a lot of laws, but uh, you know, in the beginning, there were people that were just, you know, just giving that money because they, they, they felt, you know, they sympathized with one or one aspect or, or not. So, so I think the credit unions came forward and, and, uh, and, had made their points to the federal government that they should have been brought in t- inside the tent. They should have been given a heads up that this was coming. They should have been able to have the chance to be able to make sure they had enough reserves on hand and that they could go and communicate to their customers. This is how it's going to work. Like, let's not panic here. They're after specific money. They're not after everybody's money. Let's talk. We got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, about Pierre Polyev and his, uh, his crusade, I guess, for cryptocurrency. I, he mentioned it's just about all of his speeches right now. He's drawing huge crowds doing this. Uh, I know that the Bank of Canada uh, governor, of course, uh, has has actually. Uh, well, he didn't mention him by name, as you mentioned in the piece. But uh, Tiff Macklem has talked about the, this kind of talk undermining the banking system and the Bank of Canada, uh, which is going to cause financial instability and make people think twice about investing in this country. Is is that a, a real worry here? It's a good question about how real this is. Um, you know, um, the Governor Macklem has not has. You know, I, I've been asking about him about this for a few months. About you know that the the runs that uh, that that Pierre Poilievre keeps taking at the central bank and its and its its integrity and its credibility. Um, and at, he, I mean, he's been criticizing Tiff, Tiff Macklem himself. Um, I've asked Mr. Macklem a couple times about this, and he refuses to engage. You know, I, I I guess the strategy there is you just kind of hope it all goes away, but. Uh, you know, it, it, at, the, at a certain point, you know, when when we've we've got the the front runner and the conservative leadership who keeps mentioning this and bringing bringing up not just you know as you mentioned not just the integrity of the Bank of Canada and not just how they handle inflation but also saying okay let's bail from this system and all invest in crypto so that we don't have to deal with inflation and we don't have to deal with the Bank of Canada and so forth you know if 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 that pitch comes at a at a time when people are uncertain anyway then yeah I think that that. That's something that that the Bank of Canada should be paying attention to, and that federal government, the federal liberals should be paying to as well. It goes directly to their ability to maintain trust with the electorate. Well, and as you mentioned at the end of your of your piece in the Star, if there is a lot of angst and instability right now, that's um, up to the government. I mean, they've got to step up their game here. As you mentioned, confidence is earned. It's not just granted to somebody. And right now. Uh, the government needs to do a better job, I think, especially in, in the economic cycle here, to try to regain some of that confidence. Yeah, they have an opportunity to do so right now, um, you know, because we, because we do have all these hearings going on. And, um, you know, I think we're every, you know, it's going to be a conversation all week long about what happened um, in the Emergencies Act. We've got more protesters coming to Ottawa next weekend. We've got a, a, some some court hearings going on. Like, it's going to be on the boil. And they have an opportunity really here to, to, to explain themselves, justify what they did and and be very um i guess matter of fact about what it is that drove them to do what they did and and um 
and how they hope to manage things going forward and and you know how the, how they hope to confront that kind of criticism that's coming from from the likes of of, of Pierre Poilievre for example um on on how they've managed inflation and how they've managed uh currency more broadly fascinating piece and very timely as you mentioned because we're right in the heat of this discussion in Ottawa these days Heather always a pleasure thanks so much for spending some time with us again today okay my pleasure have a great day you betcha. Heather Schofield, who's the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star and uh, writing about the economics and the concern about it right now. And, and as she mentions in the piece, and, and just as we did in our conversation, this is not to suggest that, you know, hey, it's, it's all going to go to hell in a handcart. Uh, but, you know, the, the government has to be more upfront about this. And, you know, should they have included the credit unions in the conversation when they were doing the Emergency Act? Yeah, they should. People have their money in there and, and they get concerned about that. And when, when you have money in a situation like this and there's some instability or lack of confidence, you know, the dollar's falling. But my God, what's this going to do to my account? What's this going to do to my, my savings, my pension? I want to retire in a couple of years. They've got to be more forthcoming with the information about this and say, don't worry about this. This is what this is going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And it's up to us, obviously, to do our own research on this as well. Very good piece, though, by Heather, uh, to put that right out in front of us again. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.